Okay, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And tonight we'll consider verses 13, I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The verses read like this, You, you however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Tonight we'll speak of the importance of not only learning the Word, but in living the Word, being convicted that what the Word says is true, convicted enough to actually live it out. I can't help but think of a recent small little text by Os Guinness called Prophetic Untimeliness. It's only about 118 pages, so it's more of a long essay than it is a full treatment of the subject. But Guinness, who certainly has no theological axe to grind in, in terms of, of a particular denomination or, or a particular theological viewpoint for that matter, uh, makes an incredible observation, I think, with regard to churches both in America and then so much more so even in Europe. But he says that the church in America particularly has become an, an inch deep and a mile wide. And everyone's very pleased about the, the mile-wide part. We're, we're very happy that, that Christianity seems to be spreading in that way. But Guinness has noticed and has written so very eloquently on the inch-deep part. And what his basic premise is, the church in its rush to be relevant to our culture has actually become irrelevant to our culture because we've left something so very important behind. I see today, even in our own city, but not just in our city, but in our country as well, Churches attempting to compete with the world when it comes to entertainment. I'll tell you, that's going to be pretty difficult to do. Churches are trying to out-entertain the world in order to woo people into the church. And the churches are growing numerically. But I think even their own pastoral staffs would lament that the churches are not growing spiritually as they would want those churches to grow. And an even worse situation is actually out there today, and that is churches campaigning against other churches. Churches attempting to out-entertain other churches to draw members away from wanting to go to another. And we have that happening even in our own city today. And Guinness points out that the the thing that, that we think will make us relevant, and that is looking like the world, entertaining people like the world, you know, putting the earrings in and the tattoos and the and the bad videos and all the things that people do, the things that we think are going to make us relevant, actually, the more we do them, the more irrelevant we're really becoming to people. Because the unbeliever out there, the unchurched, is actually a lot more savvy than we give them credit for. There's one thing that Guinness points out that will make us relevant, not only to the world, but to the unchurched. And that one thing is the thing that we tend to leave behind. And that is the timeless truth of the Word of God. And really, when you get to the end of the 118 pages, he could have said that on the first page, but he does so eloquently through the 118 pages, that's what we've got to go back to. We've got to go back to preaching the timeless truth of the Word of God from our pulpits and stop trying to out-entertain either other churches or Steven Spielberg, either one. Now, throughout chapter 3, we're almost to the end of chapter 3, but throughout chapter 3, Paul has been warning, uh, warning his young associate in the faith, Timothy, that the task he faces as Paul is about to depart the scene is going to be a challenging one. He has the responsibility, Timothy does, to stand for and proclaim the truth in an environment that will not always be so friendly. Not only must he stand firm in the truth, but he's also got to do it the right way. 
It's one thing to speak the truth, but Paul also says you've got to speak the truth in love. And so at the end of chapter 2, beginning of verse 22, Paul says this, Now flee, and he's speaking to Timothy, flee from youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, be kind to all, to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. I, I back up to them because it's easy to be kind to some people because some people are just kind to you. But Timothy couldn't just be kind to the people that were kind to him. He was commanded to be kind to all of them. And that's not an easy task. And that's what Paul will say in the next chapter. It must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, if we just stop there, I'm sure Timothy is saying, Hold on, Paul. First of all, you put me here in this difficult situation. These kind of the Ephesians weren't certainly weren't as rowdy as the Corinthians, but they were a little more rowdy than Timothy would like for them to have been. And he says, "You got to stand for the truth." He's told him that several times already, not only in this letter but in the first letter that he wrote Timothy as well. You got to stand for the truth. And now he's saying, not only do you have to stand for the truth, but you got to do it with gentleness. And when somebody wrongs you, you got to patiently correct them because they may come to a repentance. One of my Blessed friends up in Dallas is a man that many of you have met before, a man by the name of Elliot Johnson. And Elliot's a great guy for many different reasons, but one is he never minded correcting me when he felt like I was wrong. And all of us need a friend in the ministry that's that way. Elliot and I share most all the same views. I spent three semesters with him in independent studies and hermeneutics, so we had spent a lot of personal time together. And back in those days, I was, I was pastoring the church, but I was also commuting to Dallas twice a week. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'd get up about 2.30 in the morning. I'd drive to Dallas, take a little nap after I'd pulled aside half, halfway. And uh, after I took a little nap without pulling aside, I'd decide to pull aside after that, pull over to Roadside Park. And then, then we'd get to Dallas, we'd take classes all day, and then come back. Well, my classes were Tuesday and Thursday, and, and in the early days of the church, we had a we had a deacons meeting one day, and I told the fellows before we ever got there, even even when we planned it, I said, listen, we can have this thing on Monday night, provided we're through by 9 o'clock. I mean, 9 o'clock on the button, I'm walking out of here. We've got to be finished because I've got to get up 2.30. It's going to take me an hour to get home. You unwind, and I at least need to get a small amount of sleep. Everything went well in the meeting until right before the end. I think it was six minutes to nine. One of our beloved men brought up what he wanted to propose as a change in the doctrinal statement. Now, yeah, at six minutes to nine. Don't ever do that. Not at six minutes to nine. Those are things that take months to discuss. Literally, months. At least they should take months to discuss. And the, the change that he wanted to bring up was, was one that is not going to happen. Not now, not in a million years. You're going to have to hit me over the head with a with a baseball bat, and somebody else is going to have to be pastor before that particular change would ever come into our doctrinal statement. And I told the gentleman that, that, that proposed it, and, and I wasn't real nice with the way I told it to him. Well, the next day I drove up to Dallas after getting almost no sleep because the thing riled me up so much. got to my uh, independent study with Elliot Johnson at 7.30 the next morning, and I told Elliot all about it. You should have seen what happened at our deacons meeting last night. This guy did this, and he did this, and I told him this, you know. 
And Elliot just kind of did like he does, and he kind of just shook his head, and he said, Oh, Bruce, uh, oh, Bruce, that wasn't right. I said, what do, you, what do you mean it wasn't right? Because I knew he agreed with the theology. I knew he would find it just a terrible thing if we had changed our doctrinal statement to reflect this particular thing. He said, no, that's not the point. He said, from what you've told me, if what you told me was an accurate depiction of what happened that night, what you told me was actually very destructive to that gentleman. You did your best to destroy that man. And I said, well, verbally, perhaps I did. But I said, he needed destroying at that point. <laughs> we, we need to stand for the faith. We, we don't need to put up with that kind of stuff it, working his way into the church. He said, that's not the point. You missed it altogether. He said, that man's God's sheep. He's not yours. He said, you have no, no right to destroy him. You can destroy his idea. That's fine. But for what you told me, and I did accurately depict it, he said, you went after him personally. He said, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Houston tomorrow. I want you to call him up. And I want you to apologize to him. And I said, oh, all right. You know, because he was doing me a great favor by doing these independent studies. I could hardly tell him no. Plus, he convicted me. He's just got that kind of look in his eye. You know, Will can tell you that. And so uh, I said, well, okay. And I opened my Edie Hirsch validity and interpretation textbook, thinking we were going to get on to the subject. He said, I got something else I want you to do. I want you to call every other man that was at that meeting. I want you to apologize to them, too, for what you did in front of them. I said, but they agree with me. <laughs> and he said, that's not the point. He said, you did it wrong. You might have done the right thing, but you did it the wrong way. Now, uh, that was on a Tuesday, Thursday I got back. But you might can guess, before we ever opened the first page, he said, did you call that fellow and apologize to him? I said, well, in fact, I did. I certainly did apologize to him. So I opened the book very quickly because I knew what the next question was going to be. He said, did you call the other men and apologize to them too? And I said, but they agree with me. And he said, listen. That's not the point. I want you to apologize them before apologize them before you get back here next Tuesday, which I did, and I have never forgotten that lesson. You see, sometimes people may be wrong, but they they need to be corrected in gentleness and in kindness to all. Perhaps they may come back. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to be a, a piece of spaghetti as a pastor. That's not what that means, because sometimes you may have to correct gently and then ask him to leave gently as well. You know, I mean, you can you can still do that and, and, and put them right on out the door if they won't, and that's ha- that's happened here at our church. It, it has it, quietly. I hope. I hope you don't even hardly ever. You never knew it happened when it did. But it would, and hopefully, I can still run into those people at the market or the gallery or something, and we won't have to walk on opposite sides of the area because of the way it was handled. At least I hope they were handled in the right way. Nobody's perfect, and sometimes things don't go as they should. But. These are lessons that all who are in ministry have to learn. Now, one, one just plea from one who is in ministry in this particular position, knowing that this is the way that I have to respond to your challenges, <laughs> at least try to make the challenges nice, okay? <laughs> why, why, why don't we do that? That would make it so much easier on me to be nice back to you. But you don't have to. But if you don't, you're probably falling within the next five verses, and you don't want to do that either. Because Paul then moves on into chapter 4, or rather chapter 3, and he lets Timothy know, listen, I know it's not going to be easy for you. I understand it's not going to be easy for you because in the latter days, difficult times are going to come. And we studied in context, those latter days indicate the church age. Not the last part of the church age, but the way Paul's using the term here, he's just talking about the church age in general. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he gives a list of sins that people will commit. And these sins are being committed by people within the church. These are the very same people that Paul is going to have to correctly, uh, have to gently correct Men will be lovers of self. Uh, you could really stop there because everything else flows from that, doesn't it? Uh, Francis Schaeffer said, really, all sin flows through the Tenth Commandment, not to lust. 
But men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, halos of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. These are all people in the church now. These are the ones that Timothy has to deal with. And yes, that kind of stuff does happen in a church. God, God's spirit is surely grieved when it does. But these things happen. And then the coup de grace, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. Well, avoid having, uh, avoid having unnecessarily so, unnecessary social contact, avoid unnecessary argumentation, but he's still got to deal with them. But when he deals with them, he deals with them in gentleness. Then he, then he speaks of, in verses 6 and following, a subset of this group. And the subset of this group are the false teachers. And the false teachers, uh, um, the false teachers move in where weakness exists. And he brings this up in verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women or silly women, weighed down with various sins, led on by various forms of lust. It's not uncommon for those who teach falsehood to go after the women. For while both men and women are vulnerable to false teaching when they walk out of fellowship with God, according to Paul here, and I believe in in the gist of his teaching in the New Testament, women are especially at risk. This is no knock against women, but, but Paul is saying women are especially at risk. You've got to be very careful with this especially at risk when you're walking out of fellowship with God. Now, the answer is to walk in fellowship with God. you got no problem. But when you walk out of fellowship with God, both men and women being at risk, women are especially at risk to succumb to false teachers. As is part of the oracle given to Eve at the fall, women will have a tendency, don't throw anything, but women will have a tendency, I saw you, to, to, to desire... They'll have a tendency to desire you to usurp the leadership of those males who are in a position of authority, whether it be a husband, a pastor, or, in this case, Timothy being an authority. This tendency can be softened. It won't be removed completely, but it will be softened by walking in fellowship with God. And we say theologically that the effects of the fall won't be erased until we're in a resurrection body. But the effects of the fall can be softened when we are in right relationship with Jesus Christ. So whether it's a, a woman in this desire to dominate the relationship with those who are in authority, which is a, is an oracle of the fall, that's a reality, and it's not a prescription, by the way. It's a reality. That can be softened when you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and walking in fellowship with God. The same way that a man's part of the oracle against the man is that he will now, what used to be a total pleasure for him, that being work, will now be burdensome to him. He'll have to work now by the sweat of his brow. But that can be softened by the fall as well. I mean, that can be softened, the effect of the fall can be softened by walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ as well with regard to that. So we, we all have to be careful, but this passage speaks specifically of our ladies need to be careful to walk in fellowship with God so that you're not carried away by every wind of false teaching. Now, false teachers will eventually be proven to be wrong. Paul says this in this chapter. But in the meantime, they can do great damage. In the meantime. Paul then moves on to the truth. Later on in chapter 3, he moves on to the truth that suffering and persecution is part of the package for those who will faithfully serve God. Timothy suffered. Paul suffered. You and I have suffered. 
And we'll continue to suffer as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a false teaching of the highest order to claim, as some do today, that suffering necessarily means that you're sinful. It can mean that, to be sure. Sometimes we're suffering because we've made a series of bad decisions. Sometimes we're suffering because God is disciplining us. When we're out of line, God does discipline us. But but suffering doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned and you're being disciplined. And that's what these word of faith teachers assert today. They say that if you're suffering, it is a result of sin, period. They don't allow for a righteous person suffering. They, they, weren't, they wouldn't allow for a, a Kathleen McGregor. They wouldn't allow for Kendall Weeks. They wouldn't allow for Phyllis Brown. They, they would penetrate in, into the data there, and they would try to find something sinful in their life that had caused that. None of those three that I just mentioned, these, these lovely servants of the Lord, none of them are, are perfect by any means, and they would be the first to tell you that. But they're not. Kathleen McGregor doesn't have cancer because she's sinful or because her husband has not been faithful in preaching the word. This is part of the persecution that... That Paul says in verse 12, and indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There will be sufferings. There will be difficulties. And I'm looking around at a room where I I look into the eyes of most of you here. I know most of you well enough to know you've got some difficulties. And you've had some difficulties. Some stresses, interpersonal relationship problems, financial difficulties. If you have offspring... You've got difficulties, don't you? Because, because, because you love them so much. And you, you want them. You, and, and the offspring have difficulties with their parents too, right? Yeah. We, all, we all have them because we love each other. And we don't always get the things the way we want them to. They're not always working out the way we want them to work out, but they're ultimately working out the way God wants them to work out. And that's what counts. And that's what he's telling Timothy here. You know, remember, he's about to leave. At least he's about to leave earth and go on to heaven. These are his last words. In fact, we're, we're going to get on chapter 4 real quickly, not next week, but the week after, and it's going to go real fast. It's, it's, you, you can feel the passion with which he is pinning these final words to his close associate. He's done, they're, they're going to be difficult times. They will come. When I talked about the word of faith, folks, a few weeks ago, I quoted them. I quoted them directly, and the reason I did that is because some of the things that they said were so astounding that I really suspected that some of you might think I was making some of it up or using hyperbole when I wasn't. That's why I I I quoted them, and I quoted them in context. It's, It's some bad theology, and we need to be careful with it. When we get to verse 14, our passage for tonight, Paul again distinguishes between the false teachers, the subset of that larger group that was mentioned in verses 1 through 5 with all those sins that, that Timothy would have to deal with. But he, he again, this makes a distinction between himself and the false teachers, or himself and the false teachers, and also Timothy and the false teachers. He's done that before. Look at verse 9, if your eyes are still on that page of chapter 3. But they will not make further progress, speaking of the false teachers. And then in verse 10, but you follow my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith. So even though they're not going to make progress, you are, you are to do this. And then again in verse 13, our, our passage from two weeks ago, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. But you, in verse 14, my, my Bible reads, you, however, 
but it really could just as easily read and probably should read, but you. But you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. I want you to remember, because it's been a, we, we had a break last week for the 4th of July, so perhaps your thought process has been interrupted. I'm, I'm sure it has when it comes to this passage. Paul has just completed, just finished telling Timothy, I want you to remember the suffering that I endured. Because Timothy was probably there, or at least close by at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. That was his hometown area. I want you to remember those things, Timothy. Then he says, we're all going to have to suffer. In verse 13, evil men are going to get from bad to worse, but you. In the midst of all this, I want you to continue in the things that you've learned. He's to continue. This, this word continue is the same Greek word that we had a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe two weeks ago on Sunday morning. Remember the word minnow? The word abide, to continue, to remain in? That's the word he uses here. You, you however, are to minnow. You're to abide in the things that you have learned. And also the things of which you have been convinced. The things in this passage, in this context are truth that he has learned from his study of what at that time's Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament Scriptures, from the time that he was a youth, as well as the truth that had been taught to him by the Apostle Paul. At the core of the message that Paul had taught him was the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But Timothy has learned, and he's also become convinced, convicted, of much more than just that, of much more than just the gospel message, although that's the core. The corpus of material that is part of Timothy's learning at this point is much broader than just the Old Testament as well. When did he learn them? And when had he become convinced of them? The tense here used in the original doesn't get real specific with that. It simply states the historical fact that Timothy has learned and he has become convinced. I want you to get those two things. Not only has he learned them, but he's he's become convinced or convicted of their truth. From the context, in verse 15, we gather that the two activities, learning and becoming convinced, probably began very early in Timothy's life. Maybe not as a seven or eight-year-old, but earlier on in his life. It's natural to suppose that they had continued up until the very moment that Paul writes this letter to Timothy. At least that's my understanding. It doesn't look like Timothy has gotten off the right track here. I, I told you when we started the study of the pastorals, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Timothy was, was off into sin. I believe that Timothy was a man who needed encouragement to continue on with what he was already doing. I think that fits what we read here. Much better. But Timothy, as, as you have, I'm sure, increased in his learning throughout the years. But he also increased in his conviction that what he had learned was true. I want you to note here tonight that learning is not enough. It wasn't enough for Timothy, and in this passage is written specifically to him, but it has a broader application to all those in any kind of pastoral leadership, but then it has an application to all of us. Continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of or become convicted of. Learning is not enough. What has been learned must be applied so that one also becomes convicted 
And with this conviction, so that one has a transformed life. I told you Sunday, and I, and I meant it, I think it came out wrong, at least to a couple, and I, I didn't mean it to do that, but I, I, I did mean this. It wasn't some sort of showy gimmick. If you've been at Pine Valley an extended period of time, and you don't find yourself either loving God more or loving your fellow believer more, that's the prescription. That's, that's supposed to be the application of everything that we teach, whether we're talking about eschatology or ecclesiology or soteriology. All of those should lead back to a greater love for God and a greater love for one's fellow believer. If that's not happening, I, I said you need to seek out a place where it can happen for you because life's too short. Maybe the problem's with me, maybe the problem's with you, I don't know. But if I really earnestly desire your spiritual growth, and I do, because when it all comes down to the judgment seat of Christ, I don't for a minute think I'm going to be evaluated on how large our church was. I think I'm going to be evaluated on what kind of faithfulness was exhibited in affecting, by by means of the Holy Spirit, affecting the spiritual growth of the individual in the church. I think that's going to be how it is. It's not going to be like your 25,000-member church guys go to the front, your, you know, your 200s and 100s, 150s go to the back. That's not going to be how it is. It's going to be a degree of faithfulness and how faithful you were in being used to affect individual spiritual growth. So I really mean that. I want what's best for you. What's best for you is going to end up being best for me as well. So I want you not only to learn, but I want you to eventually become convicted that what has been taught is true. Because you see, you can learn and not become convicted. It doesn't get you anywhere. The silly women learned. In verse 6, they were always learning. But, but they never came to a, to a knowledge of the truth. And I think that in that passage is speaking of conviction of the truth. You know how you can tell if you really believe what it is you say you believe? You know how you can tell? Do you live it? And if you don't live it, you don't have to answer to me, and you don't have to answer to your husband or your wife or your mom or dad or your kids or anybody. It's between you and the Lord. But if you're learning it and not living it, the Lord has every reason to ask you, in one way or the other, do you really believe what it is that I've told you? Here's one. The Lord has told us that after we leave this body, we're going to be absent from this body. We'll be face-to-face with the Lord place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. Now, how does that affect the way you live each and every day? How does it affect the way that you feel about it when your kids are on the freeway, on the road from here to Austin or, or somewhere else? Is that a reality to you? Or is it just something that we say to make ourselves feel better at the moment? When, when you have a loved one that's facing the last few years of her life or, or his life, is that a reality to you? Or is it just something that we say? Sooner or later, it better become a reality. Because it's going to happen to all of us in one way or another. The Lord said that nothing's going to get to you that hasn't passed through his fingers first. That's a reality from the scriptures. We see that all through the book of Job. Now, how, do you live that out? Or do you get angry with God when something doesn't go your way? Or do you perhaps do like Rabbi Kushner did in his, his work, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Start speculating that perhaps God isn't powerful. He loves us, but he's not powerful enough to stop it. Do you live your theology? You know what? If you don't, you need to change your theology. Something's not right. There's a disconnect there somewhere. If you're not able to live what it is you say you believe... Paul would at least say, I wonder if you really believe it. 
It's a danger for all of us. I want to get personal now. It's okay. I won't ask for any convicting show of hands. But I do want to be personal right now. If you think I'm talking to you, I am. Okay, so I'm going to look all around the room, but I am talking to you. I'll try to, yeah. Don't you love that? But it's a danger for all of us who have grown up valuing the teaching and the learning of the Word of God to get sloppy on this point. We can learn until the cows come home. But if we're never convicted of the truth to the point where we live it, it will do us little good. That's the point that James is making in his epistle, I believe. We must know the truth, James tells us, and then we must do the truth. It's part of a package deal. The truth must lead to positive change or something is not right. It's nice to have theological discussion. I love theological discussion. But it's even better to live out our theology. Paul's going to state two reasons why Timothy must continue in the things that he learned and of which he's become convicted. First, in verse, the last part of verse 14, knowing from where you've learned them, the trustworthy character of those who had instructed Timothy in these doctrines. And second, the value of the sacred writings on which these doctrines are based in verse 15. In reality, these two are really one, if you get right down to it. For the testimony of human beings really matters little apart from the Word of God. Nevertheless, it pleased God that by means of faithful human servants to convey to Timothy the message of the Word. Now, now the first reason, though, we'll break them down, even though they, they do synthesize, I think, into one. The first reason is expressed in these words, knowing from whom you've learned them. Now, Paul is talking about Timothy's early life and where he learned this theology, this doctrine, this biblical truth in the first place. Well, Timothy had some good teachers. Not, not to mention Paul, who had taken him from the time he was probably a late teen or early 20s, on through this period of time, probably a couple decades by now. But he went back even further to his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 5. These women who had instructed Timothy in his youth in the sacred writings and who had been instruments in God's molding of Timothy. They, they got him to a position where he was ready for the Apostle Paul. Oh, would that we had more mothers that when their children are young realized the importance of sitting down with them on a regular basis and leading them spiritually. Timothy had that not only from his mother but from his grandmother as well. And I think if you go back through the history of the church and those who have accomplished, have been used by the Spirit to accomplish incredible things for God, you'll see that happens a lot. You read of a Susanna Wesley and the foundation that he gave uh, the boys, uh, John and Chucky, and, and, and the Charles, and, 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 the incredible, and the incredible ministry that those two had because the faithfulness of a mother or a grandmother you know, you may be in a position where you can't, you can't compete with buying the presents that maybe somebody else could buy your grandkids. But I'll tell you what, you can give them something, that grandchild of yours that, that you get to sit with or you get to take down to the Tasty Freeze or the, or the yogurt place and, 
and spoil their dinner and, and all that. But, but while you're on the way there and on the way back, you could give them a gift that is foundational for the rest of their life here and then on into eternity. And that's the early teaching in the Word of God. Moms, too. And this passage alludes to both Eunice and the grandmother. It's clear that Paul, Lois, and Eunice, and any others who nurture Timothy, are not viewed as independent authorities here, apart from the Word of God, but secondary sources. Secondary sources of knowledge and instruction. But they're secondary sources because they had accepted and become, they had learned and been convicted of the truth of the Scripture first. So moms, grandmoms, before you're going to be able to to help those grandkids, to help those kids. And this applies to dads too, but the, but in this particular case, it was his mother and his grandmother. His father was apparently an unbeliever, Timothy's father. So it can happen that way as well. But you've got to be convicted of the truth of what you're telling them. Because you think you can fool kids? Not for long. You can fool them for just a little while, and then when they start thinking for themselves, and I don't know when that happens, but it's pretty soon, a lot sooner than we think. They're going to see right through you. You're going to tell them you ought not to cheat on that test in school. How dare you cheat on that test at school? And then you sit and brag to your wife over dinner of how you cheated on your income tax. And they're going to listen to that. Or how you you cheated that speed trap, you know, and went through it at 80 miles an hour. You know, they're going to listen to that. And they're going to say, wait a minute, they're telling me I'm not supposed to do that, but there's a disconnect. You've got, to be, you've got to be knowledgeable and you've got to be convicted first. Well, that's the first thing that he says. I, I want you to continue the things that you're... Knowing, that, knowing who you learned them from, you learned them from some pretty sharp people, himself being one of them, and then your mom and your grandmom. But the second and, and actually more significant reason why Timothy, Timothy should abide or remain in the things that he learned in spite of the temptation to leave them when things get tough. Remember that now. We're talking about in a context of suffering. This is the reason that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Again, I don't want you to miss this detail. It's, it's the primary focus of this message tonight. Knowing the Bible, in this case, doesn't necessarily lead to salvation. Knowing the Bible would give wisdom which would lead to salvation. Remember, wisdom is knowledge applied. I hold biblical scholarship in high esteem. Anyone who knows me even superficially knows that, and I think you've seen that. I hope that you have. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about those who are, who are biblical scholars. I use their commentaries. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. So someone who has written well and has studied a, a particular aspect in, in, it, in all of its fullness I don't mind at all sitting down with them and talking about how they came to that conclusion and then and assuming it makes sense to me, I teach it. Uh, I very, very rarely chart my own course. In fact, he probably won't be here next week. I think he's traveling, so I'll, I'll tell you now. Next week's lesson, I've spent a lot of time talking to, to uh, um, Professor Will about, about some things that he's, he's spent countless hours working in his dissertation on. Just one word in, in chapter, six, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. And he's, he's allowed me the benefit of that 
those those hours, I guess probably not hours, probably months and years, <laughs> worth of work on just that one thing. So I value biblical scholarship, very much so. But the truth is that biblical scholarship doesn't guarantee anyone's salvation. This might shock you. But there are biblical scholars who don't believe and are not convicted of what they say they know. They teach in places like Harvard and Yale. And of all places, Texas A&M. Which saddens me. We had... Three students, a couple of years ago, leave our church as high school seniors, go to, one was at A&M, and then two others were at two Christian colleges. All three lost their faith in Old Testament introduction classes in college. Classes that their parents thought would be very safe things, right? We're going to be talking about the Bible. But they were taught by people who did not believe a word of what they said. They certainly they weren't, they weren't convicted of it at all. So scholarship should lead to wise application, but it is not a given. This truth has led the languid-minded to react in the opposite direction. And I would say, if what you say is true, and I've seen many cases where it is, I've known many people who knew the Bible better than I do, but don't live it out as well as I do, then maybe Bible study is not what it's all cracked up to be. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we simply need to feel our Christianity rather than to know it. Well, I trust the error of that is self-sufficient, or self-evident, rather. You can't apply what you don't know. So the answer is not to quit knowing. That's the first part. You've got to have that first. The knowing has to come before the applying. And I'm very well aware that in that sense, I'm preaching to the choir, to use the old... Baptist term. I know that. But I also have told you earlier tonight, there's a danger in what we do. That we can come week after week and night after night, and we can hear biblical truth, and we say, yeah, I believe that. And then we wake up one day and we realize we hadn't applied it in a long time. We might apply it on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night or on Sunday night, but you go to work on Monday morning, and then it all stays back at the house in our notebooks. Neatly there, I got it all worked out right there. But that knowledge needs to come with you. The conviction needs to come with you to work on Monday morning. There is little wise application from ignorance. Well, let me close this up now. God has graciously disclosed himself to us. And that is a gracious act on his part. It is a sin of enormous proportion to have his word available. And then because of laziness or simple disinterest, to leave it unlearned. God-honoring living comes from a thorough knowledge of the Word of God, rightly and wisely applied to our moment-by-moment experience. You can live your life by accident, or you can live it by intent. I choose to live mine by intent. And I would encourage you to do the same.